Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes and this is Videocast 112 and Podcast 102 for the week ending December 9th, 2021. So want to kick it off with the media spots this week and then we'll get right down to it. We've got a lot to uh, cover and uh, quite a bunch of good stuff this week. So I uh, want to thank Devik Jain and Bansari Mayor Kamdar for including me in their articles on Reuters. Uh, I guess this was uh, right after the jobs report and, uh, and, and my comments were related to you know, wh- whether or not it affects the Fed decision uh, next week as to whether to accelerate the taper or not. It seems like a foregone conclusion that they want to move ahead. We'll see. We're going to dig into that this week uh, as to what the market is telling us so far. Uh, and then also earlier this week, want to thank uh, Bansari Mayor Kamdar for including me. This was about uh, Trump's SPAC, uh, DWAC. He raised a billion dollar in capital. And I was commenting, you know, it was up at the time. Uh, and people were wondering, you know, what are they going to buy? How are they going to use the cash, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, our quote of the day for this week is going to be Warren Buffett. Opportunities come in frequently when it rains gold. Put out the bucket, not the thimble. And we had a little taste of that in the last couple of weeks with the Omicron scare. Uh, and we'll talk about some opportunities uh, this week. So I want to start with this note from uh, City. This was Goldman CEO uh, uh, David Solomon, a.k.a. DJ Saul, who likes to uh, uh, DJ at the nightclubs as, as his side gig when he's not running Goldman Sachs. Uh, and he said that uh, policy, not the pandemic, is the biz- biggest risk ahead for the markets. There's no question about that. And I think we're going to get a taste of that next week with how they deal with uh, the speed of taper uh, and how they deal with uh, you know, near-term, above-trend t- above inflation. Uh, as it relates to inflation, you see Joe Manchin uh, is, says he's uh, fed up with Biden's spending plans. He's the Democratic senator from West Virginia. Quote, we've done everything we can do to help the people. And he's walking around with this card in his pocket um, uh, listing all the things that he feels Democrats have done for the country And he says, um, you know, it's plenty. The Democrats should talk about it more. And he says, since March 20th, Congress has provided $5.4 trillion in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. In addition, Congress provided another $1.2 trillion through the historic bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. That's $6.6 trillion. Congress has already provided above and beyond annual appropriations for the past 20 months. As a reminder for context, the Marshall Plan was equal to $151 billion adjusted for inflation. That's in today's dollars. And World War II, the total spend was $4.5 trillion adjusted for inflation. And here we are at $6.6 trillion. Uh, so that's, uh, that's quite a bit. And now that you know, they're, they've got uh, $1.9 trillion that they're trying to uh, push through for the social spending plan. Um, so that's that, and he, he lists that out. So, so that's interesting from an inflation standpoint, because as we've covered in recent weeks, we, uh, we've seen most of the commodity basket from grains to metals to uh, uh, the energy complex to lumber to all these different things roll over, 
and consumers will start to feel that on a lag basis. Tomorrow's CPI numbers are probably the most important data print before the Fed meets. Um, if you looked at uh, wage growth uh, came, came in a less than expected in the jobs report last week, so that was positive because that's uh, and you know that's the sticky part of inflation. So the CPI numbers, uh, you know, I'm not sure where they're going to come in tomorrow. Um, you have seen commodities roll over, but to to be seen in end products, it might be a little early. And as a matter of fact. I talk about in the article of the week them fighting yesterday's battle. You know, prices were very high three months ago. Wages kept going up three months ago. That's starting to cool off. And the um, supply chain was a huge problem uh, in, in the past couple of months. And that's starting to loosen up as well. So, you know, will they have the foresight to think, wow, okay, all of this is now normalizing. Do we respond to what it was three months ago at its worst? and accelerate too quickly or do we say no we were probably right on most of these things and they are going to stop stop going up at at the same pace and and start to normalize uh maybe we should just do the normal taper path that we had originally laid out of six to seven months uh, through june which would be add another 600 billion dollars of liquidity to the system while you're uh, starting to wind things down uh, that seems to be lower probability. The market seems 100% convinced that they're moving ahead with accelerated taper by March, and the market is pricing in three rate hikes uh, for 2022, uh, starting as, as potentially as early as, as March, um, which would be 75 basis points for the year. Uh, I think that's going to be a lot, and, and we'll cover and, and why. Uh, I also think if Manchin does hold his ground on this, which is pretty bold considering the number of people receiving benefits in West Virginia through some of these plans, um, that could also give the Fed a little bit of cover to not move so fast if this $1.9 trillion of, of spend is, is, uh, is going to be delayed or, or, um, or not passed. So uh, we'll, we'll have to see how that plays out. Uh, so Manchin won't pledge to support Biden's spending bill. Uh, quote, the unknown we're facing today is much greater than the need that people believe this aspirational bill that we're looking at. We got to make sure we get this right. We just can't continue to flood the market as we've done, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, there's no immediate danger to triple B if it does not fact pass before Christmas. But there is a prospect of attrition as bits get picked off during the eight-week stretch from mid-December to mid-February, uh, was written by uh, an analyst uh, responding to that news. Fed, Fed officials are planning to, want, this is from the Wall Street Journal, planning to wind down a bond buying program sooner than a goal set just weeks ago, a shift that opens the door for the central bank to raise rates in the spring rather than later in the year to curb inflation. Uh, and... Um, you know, we, we covered what the market's pricing in at the moment. Uh, what scares the market more than COVID? The Federal Reserve. Uh, this is from Barron's. Same, same type of theme here. Uh, and, you know, uh, there's no question that, you know, the market had to sell off. Uh, you had the Omicron news on uh, Friday after Thanksgiving when trading uh, was pretty light, although the volume by the end of the day did pick up uh, uh, in fear. 
Um, a lot of professionals weren't at their desk and probably had to, you know, get get set up and, and get on it by the end of the trading day. Um, but you also saw in in Powell's testimony on the following Tuesday and Wednesday that that really impacted the market. You know, he went from a guy who had spent the last year convincing the world that inflation was transitory and within seconds after he was reappointed, all of a sudden he turns into Paul Volcker. Inflation is permanent and, uh, you know, he needs to uh, to act quickly. It's, it uh, took the markets by surprise for sure. Um, Morgan Stanley sees the Fed as a greater threat to stocks than Omicron. I think that, you know, the biggest effect that the speed at which the Fed tightens is, is, is going to be less on our 2022 outlook of high single digits to low double digits with a lot of volatility in 2022. Uh, that is uh, returns for the S&P 500 high single digits to low double digits. And I think it's going to be more on which sectors will outperform. So uh, in theory, if they're accelerating the taper, and, uh, and, and which means, you know, rate rises are going to come quicker, uh, they're, they're going to be out of the market of buying the long end of the curve uh, quickly, uh, in theory, the biggest beneficiaries of that a rising rate environment uh, uh, should be cyclicals in value. We have not seen that manifest in the market. So while there's this consensus that they're going to do it, you know, accelerate it and start rate hikes quickly, I think what's most likely next week is that they they potentially will accelerate it, barring some really bad Omicron news, although, you know, the anecdotes out seem to be uh, more contagious, much milder, uh, and not really affecting hospitalizations or, or deaths in a material way so far. Um, I could see them accelerating the taper and making a meaningful, concerted effort to say, uh, we explicitly have no intention to raise rates before the back half of next year, even though the taper is going to end, you know, in March. Uh, we want to give it a few months to see how the market deals with the the lower levels of liquidity before we start raising. And it is our view that uh, the earliest we would see raises is next summertime. So that that's a way that they could effectively thread the needle. Um, I will say that you know, the jobs report was a relatively large miss. So in some sense, they could have cover, but his testimony came after that data point. Uh, I think tomorrow is going to be most telling. Obviously, if the CPI and core CPI comes in, even though it's backward looking data and it doesn't take into account the lagged effect until uh, prices coming down and, and uh, the moderation of rate, uh, wage increases, uh, is, is is felt in the market, uh, a hot number would certainly give them cover to accelerate. The question is, do they explicitly parse uh, the distinction between rate, rate raises and uh, uh, accelerated taper? That will be the key. If they don't and they just say, we're accelerating and if things look good, we're going to raise right away, uh, that should hit 
uh, tech, long duration assets, uh, long duration earnings assets, because as that discount rate increases, um, the value of the future cash flows go, goes down and that will disproportionately affect uh, tech and, and managers will start to look for um, managers will start to look for for businesses that generate immediate cash, banks, energy, industrials, uh, et cetera, the laggards. And, and that seems to be the setup. I mean, if you look at earnings growth for next year, uh, industrials are expected to grow the fastest at 32.6% earnings growth relative to the S&P at uh, just under 9% earnings growth. And um, and that would make make sense that that group would start start to outperform some of the laggards from this year, which we love, like Boeing, um, like uh, Lockheed Martin, uh, like some of the transports, like uh, you know Southwest, United Airlines, etc. When when all of that starts to normalize, um, there was an analyst uh, from J.P. Morgan Kelly on the Liz, on the claimant countdown today, and he said. Uh, the carrying cost of crazy is zero. <laughs> and I love that because I, I, I've said that when the cost of capital is, is zero, there's always malinvestment every cycle. And he was referring to crypto and he was referring to many of these stocks that have been hit lately uh, with you know price to sales multiples greater than 10 times, greater than 20 times, in some cases greater than 100 times and earning no money. And, uh, and that's, that exactly sums up where we are. The carrying cost of crazy is zero. And um, that's going to change. Once, once there's a cost to capital, uh, whether the rate rises start in March or they start in June or July, uh, the shift is going to start to look at those companies that can generate uh, cash today and... Uh, and have been have been relative laggards, and and the returns of what's led uh, the five or six stocks that have attributed. I think um, if you pull out the attribution, seventy percent of the gains in the S and P this year were attributable to six stocks, uh, which is basically Fang plus plus Nvidia more or less. Um, so, so that's going to be the impact more than what it'll do to the general indices because I think some of these laggards and lower weight sectors are going to really fly. So you'll have monster rallies under the surface even if the index returns are relatively subdued uh, than before. What I want to do is, is click over to the questions of the week, ask me anything. We've got a decent number of them. John uh, John Croner comes out. Tom, thanks again for all the great wisdom that you share. My question is about ETF. Seems like everyone and their brother has one today. How do you rate them and when do you use them? Are they a good choice for part of a portfolio? Thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, John, uh, you know, if they're, they're, they're very tax efficient. Uh, so if you want to get like broad market or broad industry exposure quickly, you have the spiders. Like if you wanted to get industrial exposure for next year, for instance, and you didn't want to pick stocks, you could buy the XLI. If you wanted to uh, transports like FedEx and uh, some of the air carriers, I think are in IYT. Um, if you wanted to just have a balanced portfolio with you know, U.S. and international, you know, the international have underperformed. They're trading at much lower valuations. The expectation is they may start to take the mantle next year. So you might want to have some like uh, XUS, like uh, VXUS, 
you might want to have some emerging markets, which we've spent a lot of time on and we're going to spend a little time on today. Uh, and you can do that very quickly, very uh, in a, you know, uh, cheaply and, ju- and just mirror the indices. You're not going to get massive alpha with them. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they do have more and more active funds that what's interesting about it is the tax structure because you're buying the ticker and as long as you don't sell the ticker other than very nominal distributions and or dividend distributions all the trading that's going on under the surface you're not paying uh, taxes on those short-term trades uh, because of the uh, creation and redemption baskets the way the way that it's structured is very tax efficient so um, you know, they're, they're good products. I mean, relative to mutual funds, I guess, is what, you, what your comparison would be. I think it's just a function of who's the manager and what are the returns uh, net of fees. And or if, if you just want to use them to get broad market exposure, it's an efficient way to do it. Sometimes you just want to quickly get sector exposure before you start picking the stocks. It's an effective way to do it. So, uh, so yeah, there are plenty of uses uh, for ETFs, um, uh, even when generating alpha as like a placeholder, uh, biding time because you want to have money working, you know, uh, all of the time. And then, and then as you get more granular, you can replace out some of them with individual stocks, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that, that's how I do it. Again, all of this is opinion, not advice. Go to hedgefundtips.com, click on uh, terms. And um, what I try to do each week is just share with you guys, how I'm thinking, how I'm doing, which could be completely different from what's appropriate for your setup. So always, you know, talk with a financial advisor based on your situation. I'm, I'm dealing exclusively with accredited investors, uh, very high net worth and qualified institutions. So it's, it's a different game. Um, ben, first name only. Tom, your, hey Tom, short-term thoughts on uh, IWM, which is the small caps and Apple, please. Thank you, Ben. Um, okay, so I would say um, small caps I like because, so well, I, all right, I've got the Apple chart here. So, you know, the thing with Apple, uh, Apple's fine. Obviously, it's a great company, et cetera, and it could keep, you know, slowly grinding up. Has a tendency every two years to um, breach its its 200-day moving average and, you know, basically cuts off a half to a third of its value very, very quickly, and then it resumes the uptrend. Um, you know, we're only about a year and a quarter in, uh, I'm sorry, a year and three quarters since it last breached the 200-day the moving average. Um, the last time it took uh, uh, just over a year, the time before that, it took uh, about two full years before it breached and then it, then it took off about a third of its value uh 2013 to 15 that was about year, almost two years before it breached so there might be some room on this I, you know obviously the major gains are are out if if you look at um you know from trough to peak each of these cycles you know from 11 to 30 so uh, 200%, then from 21 to 56, uh, a little less than that, so, you know, 170%, then from uh, 40 to 80, so 100%, now 52 to 174, so it's up 200%. So this is this is getting on the higher end of, of its normal 
cyclical before it gives back a third and then resumes its uptrend. I mean, the company's fine. The business is doing well. Maybe the uh, the App Store thing is going to start to affect earnings in future quarters. We'll see. But then they'll announce the car. So I, I just don't buy things up. So for me, this is not interesting. Uh, if it's in your portfolio, would, would I be rushing to the exits? Uh, probably not. I, I, th- I think it's fine. It's like basically like owning the S&P here. Um, all right. Next one was IWM, small caps. These should um, outperform in a rising rate environment. So they've been consolidating sideways since June, since uh, February, basically. They've done nothing. Um, and um, so it's basically gone sideways. I do think that small caps uh, could resume their uptrend if we start to see the rising rate environment. We're going to know a lot more after the Fed meeting uh, next week. So, but generally, yeah, I, I kind of like uh, Russell 2000 looking out the next three to six months. Um, okay, next one uh, is from Surya is asking about, uh, she's worried about um, if Alibaba gets delisted, what will happen to my shares? Would I lose all its value as no one knows where the bottom is? So the answer is um, two things. We've switched all of our um, shares in, in most accounts or are in the process. It takes about a week. Basically, all you have to do is call your broker and switch over. Tell them that you want to switch out from the U.S. Uh, ticker, uh, BABA, the ADS, to the Hong Kong ADRs. Some brokers will switch it over to... B-A-B-A-F, which is a U.S. OTC placeholder for the 9988, which is the Hong Kong listed shares uh, of Alibaba. Others will switch out directly for the Hong Kong listed shares, 9988, depending on your broker. Uh, And it's an eight for one uh, switch. And that's related to the currency exchange rate of the Hong Kong dollar, which is pegged. Uh, so you, the beauty of that versus, you know, having to sell BABA and then buy 9988 in Hong Kong is that there's like an hour to an hour and a half difference overnight between U.S. after hours and when Hong Kong opens, uh, effectively, uh, I think it's like 11 and a half or 12 hours later. Uh, so you don't want that hour of potential slippage. If you, if you get, uh, the, the, the word is that, that the, U.S. ADS are fungible, meaning they're transferable back and forth uh, at an 8 to 1 ratio. You get 8 Hong Kong shares uh, or the BABAF for every one share. So it won't affect your basis. You're still getting the same amount of shares and and effective ownership uh, of the business by switching out. My sense is this delisting thing is going to be a a complete non-issue for uh, Alibaba. But the way that I explained it to clients is that there's zero penalty other than a modest uh, transfer fee uh, to the custodian. Uh, There's zero downside to do the transfer, uh, but there may be unlimited upside. So if you, um, even if they were to delist the Alibaba U.S. shares tomorrow, uh, because of the fungibility, you would probably just get automatically redeemed for the BABAF, that's the OTC placeholder for the 
um, the 9988, uh, or you'd get the 9988 uh, shares, you know, eight for every one of the U.S. that you had, same ownership equivalency um, automatically because that's already set up. In the case of Didi, Didi did not have a Hong Kong ADR. So I think what they're trying to do is set up a Hong Kong listing and then figure out a way to convert the U.S. shares to the Hong Kong, just like you know Baba already has and some of the others. And the other re- thing I said to my client is that there's no downside to doing it. And um, what, we all, what we want to do is if it does become a, an issue, get ahead of the institutional players that will start to shift. So uh, the MSCI China index, I believe, uh, converted to, I think they're Tencent and JD holdings to Hong Kong in the past couple of weeks, probably getting ahead of it. You'll probably see a little bit of that with like the K-Webs, the US ETF, that one that we covered last week that is $8 billion uh in in assets uh some of these will probably start to shift what you don't want to see because they have three years basically to show their uh audited financials let the uh, pcaob uh review their audits and and while they are from big four accounting firms in the case of bob of uh price waterhouse coopers etc if the chinese government says no we don't want you to share with that Etc. You don't want to be in a situation where, as it gets closer to 2024, do the Hong Kong and the U.S. shares start to diverge because the U.S. shares are expected to delist, you know, at the end of 2024 because no, you know, maybe there, an agreement hasn't been reached, uh, etc. Whereas the Hong Kong shares would be completely unaffected because there would be no delisting risk. Uh, as there as there would be in the U.S. My sense is this is going to be a non-issue, and we've heard so much from the Chinese government uh, earlier this week. There were quite a lot of developments that we're going to get into. So uh, the way that I looked at it is there there was zero downside to make the switch. And the other thing that's beautiful about the fungibility is we can always switch back for a modest transfer fee. I think it's like five cents a share, or flat if you have a lot of shares in which you know which we do in many accounts. I think it's a flat fee of. Uh, uh, $500 or something like that. But uh, to switch back is just as easy. So if it was like all clear, I, I don't know, you know, if tomorrow the the SEC and the, you know, Chinese government said that uh, we love Alibaba being listed in the U.S., they'll never lose their listing. I, I wouldn't be in like a, a, an urgent panic to switch back. There's there's absolutely no difference. They they track exactly. The only difference would be as we move to 2024, if they started to diverge because the U, everyone was trying to get out of the U.S. shares all at once and the Hong Kong traded up to intrinsic value while the U.S. had an aberrational um, uh, divergence. But again, I, I don't really see why that would happen because at any point in time, you could just trigger the eight for one conversion into Hong Kong. So, so it's already in place. It's unlike what, what happened with uh, PetroChina and some of the ones that were linked to the Chinese government, uh, et cetera. So I just want to focus on the business. I don't want to even think about that. That's why we did the transfer, not like in reaction to, oh my God, what's going to happen? Nothing's going to happen is our general view, but there's no downside to being protected against like the one one hundredth of 1% probability uh, three years out from now. So 
why why not do that and then you can just focus on the business and keep adding there and all the delisting every time you see a delisting headline is is an opportunity to add more to your position versus worrying about getting delisted uh so great question there uh matt mitchell tom was wondering if how you factor in overall market valuations into your investment process for example the s p cape ratio is currently right around 40 times a level we haven't seen since the dot-com bubble all-time average just over 17 times do you take a similar approach to Buffett by being agnostic to the direction of markets, the economy, and just look to buy great companies at, at prices that give you a large margin of safety? Or do you, or do overall market valuations influence your approach to allocation? As always, keep up the great work. Well, hey, look, this is one of the key reasons that China stocks are so interesting to us, uh, is they're trading at the low end of their five-year range at 12.7 times forward versus the U.S. is trading at 21.5 times forward. So for my money, uh, I do want to take into account where, where can I find value. But there are plenty of stocks that, you know, although you have this, first off, I think the CAPE ratio is crap. And the reason is, um, is it cyclically adjusted PE, it's like the average of earnings over 12 years. Uh, 10 years or whatever it was. And I remember emailing the professor uh, Schiller uh, over at Yale. And I said, you know, the aberration of this is because the the Cape had shot up, I think like two years ago or whatever it was. And I said, the aberration is in 2008, earnings were zero. And that was like a one, the earnings were negative. So it's totally skewed and, and misrepresented a much higher multiple than the reality should be because there haven't been many times in history uh, where earnings went negative as they did in 2008. And he acknowledged that that was correct. It, 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 it was skewed and it was aberrational. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, you basically, if you look at the S&P 500 from 2000 to 2013, you had this basically like a uh, Great Depression period because of, uh, you know, the s it, it took indices you know, 13 some odd years to break out to new highs. And then if you look at the NASDAQ, it was much longer because the NASDAQ has crashed 80 or 90, very similar to 1930 to 1942, 1945. Uh, so I just think it's, it's um, you know, it's okay to look at those things. The other thing is uh, Buffett indicator, market cap to GDP. I think uh, Munger had commented on it, you know, just because it were, was useful in the past doesn't mean it's useful now. I mean, market cap to GDP, when you think about all of the private companies that are worth tens of billions of dollars that can access capital in a way that they could never access capital before that don't even need to go public. Um, I think if you if you added all the private unicorns, billion dollar plus startups uh, to the general that historically would have had to go public when they were. 300 billion, 300 million, 500 million, $3 billion companies now 10 and 20 billion that are still private, I think you get a completely different ratio. So I, I, I don't understand that. I don't even understand the metric. Uh, it's like which index to, uh, oh, the Wilshire to GDP. Okay. It's not the, it's not the Russell to GDP. It's not the MSCI to GDP. Like, um, and all those indices are dynamic. And again, the, the liquidity in the private markets and um, the rate environment, you know, <laughs> the, I'll go back to uh, the, that analyst, the carrying cost of crazy is zero. 
and that's that that's where we are so um to answer your question and then the other thing you look at while the nasdaq was crashing 90 percent from 2000 to 2003 value investors and small cap investors uh, had some of their best performance in history uh during those three years while the s p was down 50 something percent and the nasdaq was down 80 or 90 managers that had bought value uh had like 20 to 30 percent years for for three four consecutive years while everyone else who had bought the high price to sales stocks got got absolutely slaughtered so uh i think just avoid crazy and uh look look for deep value and i and i think you'll be good good to go um but great question matt and then finally okay this is a long one but a good one from sumit kapoor uh don't know if i have time to read the whole thing but Hi, Tom. Hope you're doing well, and thanks for all you do for us. I, I sensed a bit of frustration in your voice in the last podcast towards the Fed's stance on taper acceleration, so I did some analysis on whether the Fed will accelerate the taper or not. My conclusion is that there's a very high probability that the Fed will announce accelerated taper during its meeting this month. Here's my analysis. So she went through the 10, uh, 12 FOMC members, seven board of governors, five Federal Reserve presidents, um, one seat currently vacant. There are only 11 FOMC members. There are Powell, Bowman, Brainerd, Clarida, Quarles, Waller, Williams, Barkin, Bostic, Daly, and Evans. And then uh, she did some analysis for each of those 12 and uh, based on their public comments and said, uh, even if Lale one of and one of Quarles or Bowman, who are Republicans, were to switch their position, there would still be six to five in favor of taper acceleration, given this accelerated taper is on... Uh, given this accelerated taper is on, in my opinion, what do you think? I think you're right. I think I think the market thinks that uh, the key will be whether they parse uh, the rate hikes as distinct and 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 even go far enough to say, despite the fact we're accelerating the taper, we want to take till at least summertime to see the lagged effect of the liquidity withdrawal for those first three months. So expect no rate hikes till at least summertime. If they do that, the accelerated taper will be a non-factor. Um, if they don't do that, uh, that could be an issue, and I'll tell you why as far as the yield curve goes uh, as we get to the article of the week. Um, do you think you've, the market is priced in an accelerated taper? <sighs> Great question. Uh, I think that consensus is that it's going to happen, but the market is not behaving like that. And... I say that because of the way value is trading relative to growth. Yes, you've seen the high P price to sales stocks roll over. Um, here we go. Okay, so this is value to growth. The Russell 1000 value to Russell 1000 growth. It started to take off. Um, when they started talking accelerated taper, it corrected. Today it was back up a little bit, but this is not a uh, high conviction. You know, if if they were certain that there was accelerated taper and rate hikes were going to start in March, this ratio should be like up here. It should be shooting through the roof. Cyclicals and value should be taking off like they did after the election last year. Uh, and they're not doing that yet. Maybe it's a wait and see because uh, it's such a, abrupt sea change in his messaging that the market's just trying to die is this guy for real what is he doing is he just talking down the the long end of the curve or is he really going to do it so um 
how should, how should we take advantage of this situation? Look, I mean, whether they accelerate the taper or not is not going to impact whether I think Boeing is cheap, uh, whether I think uh, Alibaba is going to double over the next you know, couple of years or sooner, um, whether I think uh, Lockheed Martin is a great opportunity, whether I think the drug stocks are cheap and probably going to start to uh, bounce back next year once this spending bill is put to bed. There's some drug pricing things in the spending bill that are just leaving them languishing before year-end. I think you're going to see some of these AstraZeneca's, Bristol-Myers, Merck's, Novartis that have all been left for dead. I think they're going to do, do quite well. Um, so, so what he does doesn't really affect my outlook on the S&P 500 for the next 12 months it's just going to impact which sectors outperform. And if I have my druthers, I, I, I think that we are going to see uh, a pickup in the cyclicals and value um, a, as this moves ahead. So um, it's not like a what button do I have my finger on, you know, with trepidation and sweat pouring down my face based on their decision on the 15th. I really don't, I really don't care. It's not going to change much. Um, it's just a question of, if they do steer the ship incorrectly, they are going to get a recession in 2023 because they're going to invert the curve next year. Uh, it's not my base case, but they could, they could in fact make that mistake and then, then we'd have problems. Uh, I don't think they're going to do that. I think it's more rhetoric and, and uh, um, the most important thing is the rate hikes versus the, the taper timeline because during the taper, whether it's three months or six months, liquidity is added to the system. The question is, how much liquidity? Do you get the full 600 to 650 billion if they push it out to June? Or do you get, you know, half that if they if they rush it? And uh, it looks like we're going to get half that. But the most important thing is, can they hold the short end of the curve down quickly? Uh, in in how they message it this week so that the curve re-steepens? Because right now, um, the curve is flattening very quickly. I mean, this is insane. So, you know, you get down to here where the two-year yield exceeds the 10-year yield. You've got a guaranteed recession six to 18 months after that. Um, my sense is that they do the accelerated taper and they're staunch on uh, a delay in raises. That should start to re-steepen the curve. That would be very good for uh, value in cyclicals and um, and and probably uh, more subdued returns for uh, tech and growth, the long duration earnings earnings assets. So we're going to see if they can turn this around and how they do that. This is the most important uh, chart to be watching every single day because once you get down here, you got your re next recession queued up six to eighteen months later uh, without fail. Uh, but we've we've got a little room there, and they've got a chance to back this up. And I and I. My guess is they've got their eye on that. Um, okay, so we got a big bounce uh, in BABA. I think it's up uh, 14.3% off of its recent lows. Uh, Monday was its best day in four years. A uh, couple of things happened. One, um, they got an upgrade from Citi with a target of $234, implying 100% upside from Monday's opening price, uh, the team at the bank said that Alibaba's valuation was justified given its dominant position in e-commerce. That's the, their $234 valuation on the uh, uh, U.S. ADS. And many of its new businesses, which are loss-making, actually have higher value than should be accounted for. 
Um, concerns that Chinese uh, stocks may be forced to ditch New York amid regulatory pressures on these companies from both Beijing and Washington may be fading. Um, And China's central bank also offered some monetary policy stimulus to start to weak cutting bank banks cash reserve requirements. This was one of the biggest announcements. We've been talking about this. We anticipated this. Everyone said it wasn't going to happen. Uh, and it did happen, which is they lowered the reserve requirement ratio by 50 basis points. Again, this is in line with what we said was going to happen uh, in the 12 months ahead of the China National Congress, which is next November. They do this every single time. They crack down. They assert their authority and regulatory strength. Uh, they beat everything up uh, the year before the event. And then the 12 months going into the event, they juice it with policy stimulus uh, and they go into the transition meeting uh, from a position of strength and growth and optimism. And uh, this time it looks like it's going to be no different. They've already started the, the process exactly on schedule 12 months before. Um, so that was that. The other thing is they changed the CFO, which was viewed as a, a big positive. Um, and there's a consensus that... Um, that um, the regulatory crackdown is waning. You know, you had 2.8 billion earlier this year in fines. The most recent fine a few weeks ago was like $78,000 for a handful of uh, infractions. So it came out to a few hundred grand. uh, And that's usually the wind down phase. And I think JD and Tencent got the similar similar type of uh, fines. Uh, China markets are hot again as traders bet on more policy easing. Um, China's central bank announced the reserve requirement ratio cut on Monday, uh, breaking free. Beijing signals this week that it will provide more liquidity for banks while easing curbs on the real estate industry is stoking optimism that a long-running campaign to deleverage the economy may be coming to an end. CS300, CSI 300 capped its biggest three-day gain since mid-May on Thursday, um, et cetera, et cetera. And time for catch up. China stocks have sharply underperformed their U.S. peers this year. They show the charts and these type of divergences always uh, have a tendency to converge. The question is, do they converge because China plays catch up and has a huge monster run or does U.S. roll over? I think it's going to be more of the China catch up than the U.S. roll over. Uh, and that will be a positive thing. China shifts towards easing policy as property downturn hits growth. They released... $188 billion of reserves into the banking system over the weekend. Uh, And that's related to the uh, 50 50 basis points uh, our reserve requirement ratio cut, Um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, and there's more behind it. Um, More dovish statement. We think the reduction would help offset the headwinds facing the economy, particularly the first quarter of 2022. We maintain our view that, that an additional 50 to 100 basis points of reserve requirement ratio cut would come next year. So that would, you know, while the Fed is anticipated to increase the Fed funds rate by uh, 75 basis points, uh, we're looking at 150 basis point cuts of uh, the reserve requirement ratio over in China. So uh, while the rest of the world is in theory tightening, China is going to be loosening, just as we had said for months over the summer. If you remember, I said China made a huge mistake tightening early this year before the rest of the world was recovered. And now they're paying the price and they're going to have to reverse course. Uh, And everyone said they're not going to 
admit they were wrong and, and reverse. I said, they're going to have no choice before the end of the year. And sure enough, right on schedule, here we are. So this is good news. This all works on a lag basis, but it's going to be a net positive and start to attract flows. Um, Chinese regulator also came out after the delisting sell-off last week, says that the government policies are not necessarily linked to overseas IPOs. Chinese regulator said on Sunday, right before the open, that Beijing's recent policy moves were not aimed at specific industries or private firms and were not necessarily linked to companies seeking to list in overseas markets. So they're walking that back a bit. Again, I, I don't think anything's happening with delisting, particularly for um, uh, Bloomberg with their ads. I pay you so much money for my subscription and you... Okay, here we go. Chinese internet ADR sell-off is overdone, Citigroup says. Uh, DD is an isolated case, they're saying. Um, the risk of other ADR delisting could materialize by 2025, she said, noting that this would be after three consecutive years of failing to disclose mandated information starting with the 2022 annual reports. Uh, we view this sell-off as a buying opportunity for those big cap American depository shares that have dual listings in Hong Kong, she said, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And you saw the, you know, the best year in, uh, the best day in, in a long time on Monday. And we think that that's going to change, you know, so with, with it up 14%, I mean, with, with all the damage and all the fear, you know, do, does it go back and retouch its lows to shake out the final weak sisters before taking off? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to play that game. We've added down the whole way. We've got a beautiful basis now. We're excited for 2022 with the China stocks and, and uh, particularly with Alibaba. We think it's, it's, it's a home run. But, you know, you have to size it. You know, we've covered multiple times, you know, that one fund in London that did 80% of their fund in Alibaba at much higher levels. I mean, the, the number one thing in this game is if, if you buy... A handful, you know, Buffett said it perfectly. He said, if you buy a handful of stocks that are trading at below their intrinsic value, you basically can't lose money. Sooner or later, they revert back to intrinsic value and you outperform. Uh, and the key is to have the right kind of partners that in the short term, they'd stick with you until they get the huge alpha that comes when, when these things revert. Uh, but the, the other key is that you can't get carried out in a stretcher. No matter how high your conviction is in one idea, you have to assume that there could be things that you don't know that you don't know and it could go to zero. And you have to have a portfolio that the max risk you take on one position that the others can outperform and make up if the absolute worst case scenario happened to one company. And that's how we're set up. You know, this fund with 5 billion, 4 billion in BABA, they may, not, they may wind up being right and not benefit because their partners won't stick around long enough because 80% of their fund is in it. So when, when it takes a hit like that, you know, that's, that's like monster amount to the portfolio. Whereas if you have a 10, high, high conviction, 10, 15, or 20, it makes no difference. The other positions will make up for it in the short term. And then, you know, 12 months out, you get huge amounts of alpha from, um, from, the, from the most volatile stock as the other funds are uh, basically... Uh, having forced forced liquidations, uh, you're there picking it up, slowly adding, bringing down your basis, and then when it turns, it just it just turns massively. And I think we're we're on that cusp, whether it's whether it's already happened or you get a retest and then that's it. 
Uh, I don't know. Don't don't really think about that. But, you know, we've taken the delisting off the table by switching out to Hong Kong. We know we've got a great business and uh, and we'll go into some of that. Um, Okay. the other thing is China's credit growth rebounds after slowing for almost a year. We talked about the credit growth impulse, how it was at that low and now it's starting to bounce. So uh, things are falling into place there. China bond rally. uh, Okay, so they cut that. There was some announcing, well, we're going to do this now, but we might, you know, we may not do a lot more, but you're seeing all the analysts coming out and saying it's another 50 to 100 bips next year. And that's in line with the 12 months leading into the China National Congress, which they do every time. Uh, an analyst out, uh, not an analyst, a uh, buy side um, PM. This is how to play China's tech crackdown. These are the potential winners, according to one investor. So this is an Asian guy, CEO of uh, Esoterica Capital over there. And he's basically saying that uh, Alibaba and Tencent are the key national champions investing in areas from cloud computing to semiconductors. So when you think about, um, oh, they want to crack down on tech. Yeah, they want to crack down on tech, but they also want to be, uh, they have that dual circulation. They want to be independent in um, semiconductors and AI and, uh, and cloud. And Alibaba is a leader in all of those things. So for them to become you know technically independent uh, uh alibaba so so quote here's the quote we need companies like alibaba tencent huawei to be there to represent the top natural technologies um companies representing innovations they are still the benchmark for chinese tech uh said that beyond their core businesses both alibaba and tencent are investing in key areas of strategic priority for beijing including cloud computing and semiconductors. And that's the name of the game. So they're going to be generally supportive. They have um, disciplined them in a material way. And, uh, and now they're going to back off and let them do what they need them to do for the government, which is uh, Im- improve their um, uh, technology as it relates to semiconductors, which, as we covered a couple weeks ago, Baba came out with the uh, special chip for their cloud business. Um, and uh, and their their cloud is growing faster than AWS, so uh, so that's a positive thing. And they'll probably want to celebrate that going into the uh, 2022 National Congress. Um, okay, so that's that. Uh, more on the uh, reserve requirement ratio. Um, okay, so. And there's more behind it. So the PBOC reiterates that liquidity will be kept reasonably ample, will step up cross-cyclical adjustments, uh, will not resort to flood-like stimulus, will reduce capital costs for financial institutions um, by around uh, Chinese yuan, 15 billion per annum. And then the analysts came out, uh, we're in the midst of a policy shift. Uh, If we consider this cut, and the one in July, there should be more to follow as this is not yet enough to counter the downward pressure. That's from the, the real estate. Uh, this is all within expectations. Uh, I expect more cuts because here's another analyst because the property situation is still unfolding and cutting interest rate is not practical given high inflation. Reserve requirement cut is the easiest and within the PBOC's control given it doesn't need to be signed off on the state council China's cabinet. A cut at this point in time can boost liquidity just in case, even though the market doesn't lack liquidity and can also boost some confidence as the central bank shows its willingness to support if the bottom falls out. 
Um, reserve requirement ratio may have been brought forward by concerns about uh, the China Evergrande contagion risk. This is still faster than the median forecast. Um, points to more, yeah, slowdown in economic conditions point to more easing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there's more behind it and it's gonna keep coming and it's gonna come strong in the next 12 months leading into the National Congress. Uh, China CSRC, this was over the weekend, downplays overseas delisting fear after stock plunge. Uh, it respects companies' choices on where to list their stock while again denying reports of a possible ban on uh, one method of overseas stock listings. China Securities Regulatory Commission also said in a statement, reports are completely misleading that regulators are promoting firms drop their U.S. listing. Some domestic companies are actively working with Chinese and foreign uh, regulators to have their shares listed in the U.S., the agency said. So, um, you know, so, that, so that's that. I mean, it's straight from their mouth. I know there's a little skepticism on, on the official statements, but what, what is their incentive to to uh to lie um okay here's an article from jamie powell in uh financial times china's population is shrinking fast japan 1989 anyone and i think this is why they have to ease up now on the regulations i, I they don't have the same demographic tailwind that they had we've discussed this uh and these uh these tech majors are going to be the key to, to growth moving forward as their population rate uh, and birth rate have uh, materially declined. And keep in mind, there aren't people lined up to immigrate to China. I mean, the benefit we've had with the declining birth rate is that we've always had millions of people that wanted to come to our country. The immigration did slow a little, a little bit over the previous four years. I think that's going to pick up and our population is going to continue to grow. And we've got a beautiful de demographic tailwind with the uh, millennials larger than the boomers at an average age of 30 starting family and housing formation it drives the bus as it did from 82 to 2000 and it drives the bus as it did from 48 to 66 1948 to 66 um okay so uh chinese sees boeing 737 max flying around year's end so the announcement last week was um it was the uh it was basically Oh, there was a word for it. So it was like the recertification, but it wasn't exactly recertification. It was the plan to recertification was the announcement when the stock jumped. Uh, they, they basically, okay, so they, they've said that the planes will need to be modified and pilots will have to go through additional training before the flights and deliveries of the aircraft can, can resume. CAC official Yang told journalists, um, and they're anticipating that happens before the year end. But it's basically... Um, okay, so, so what they gave was uh, Watchdog had Thursday provided airlines with a list of fixes that would be required for the aircraft to be authorized to fly again. I think it was flight reauthorization or something last week, and then the recertification when they can start deliveries should be before the end of the year, which uh, they just have to meet these uh, nominal requirements, and then they're back in the game. So it's something to keep an eye on which is helpful because they're still having, you know, 787 delivery delays and nonsense, but uh, we still love that and, uh, and, and we're excited to see how that unfolds in the next handful of months. Um, okay, so we went through that. The reserve requirement re uh, ratio was huge and there are more articles about this. Um, Most of the analysts are coming in here on the recertification on the back of that authorization announcement and 
with uh, the recertification coming. They're coming in. Uh, Herbert rates Boeing stock and outperform with the 275 price target. Uh, shares have been beaten up by the max woes in COVID-19. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, basically, look, the after the max recertification, 787 deliveries up uh, next on the, on the catalyst front, and that'll probably be early to mid Q1. Um, but if you just step back, look, uh, our, everything else that has is in the normal course of business, much of it has returned to pre-pandemic levels or greater. We even saw the TSA pass-through numbers over Thanksgiving get up to $2.4 million, 2.4 million people on that Sunday. Uh, so you have to just sit back and say, are there going to be more people flying uh, a year from now, two years from now than flew in 2019? And I think the answer is resoundingly yes. And yet Boeing is still, you know, 57% off of its pre-pandemic highs, huge backlogs, huge increase in middle class, uh, and they still operate in a duopoly. So uh, this is a great story, and the catalysts are just slowly unfolding, and that's that's the story there. Uh, the uh, Evergrande default, uh, that's just a slow motion. We've covered that before. The government's going to ring fence it and break it up. Uh, this, I just put together a PDF with uh, all of the Alibaba that research that we've done over the year, uh, the last, uh, you know, couple of months that we've put out, um, and went through this, the key themes, which we've covered a lot of them, but I think it is timely. By the way, if you're on the podcast, we're going to get cut off shortly. Just go to hedgefundtips.com, click on the video cast. It's a YouTube video. Fast forward to minute 60 and you'll pick up word for word exactly where you left off. Um, but the, the basic thing is, you know, the, here's the Baba chart. It's fallen back to this breakout level from 2017. You can buy it at 2017 prices. The difference is that revenues grow, have grown by 350% and cash flow and EPS have doubled over the same period and are going to double over the next couple of years as well. Um, and that, that opportunity doesn't come around. So like when I see something like that, so what are the risks, the delisting risk? Well, that's off the table now. We own Hong Kong shares. Um, continued regulatory crackdown and fines, they, they keep getting less and less and less, uh, et cetera. So, uh, so we like that. And despite the persistent government regulatory crackdown that ensued since the beginning of 2021 through this fall, Alibaba was able to grow revenues 38.4% year on year in its most recent quarter. This exceeded the top line growth in the same quarter last year, which was plus 32%, and the year before, which was plus 35%. So you're getting like such a massive growth stock uh, with a huge moat around their business for um, uh, for a uh, below market multiple, you know, 13 times next year's earnings. It's just unheard of. And that's just because of the short-term fear and the deleveraging, etc. Uh, other thing to keep in mind um, is that the earnings miss last quarter was largely attributable to Alibaba's holdings in Chinese public securities. And all Chinese stocks went down from August through uh, November due to the crackdown, and they held quite a bit, and that impacted their bottom line. We believe that for the most part, excluding some of the education stocks, that most of this uh, short-term impairment will be temporary and the earnings will come back uh, meaningfully. The earnings multiple on Baba has contracted from an average of 28 times since inception 
to 13 times next year's estimates. The current price to sales ratio is 2.7 times, which is below its five-year average of 10.2 times. For context, the S&P, which grows much slower, uh, is trading at 21 and a half times earnings and three times sales, 3.1 times sales. Amazon's trading at uh, four times sales and 69 times earnings. And Google's trading at three times sales and 26 times earnings. And they're growing much more slowly. They're much more mature companies. I mean, we're... AliCloud is relative to where AWS, it's just staggering the growth runway they have and the growth that they're having outside, both in China and outside of China. So $1.2 uh, 